from Psalm 84, uh, verses 11 and 12. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord of hosts, how blessed is the one who trusts in him. Father, we thank you that you withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly with you, who choose to walk in obedience. Father, we're so thankful for your faithfulness to us. You are the author of every good and perfect gift, and most of all, the gift of your Son that has brought to us eternal life. And so this morning, we want to submit to you today. We know the promises of the Word, that you are present with us, that you are the one who empowers your Word, and we want you to do that this morning because we know that it is only through the Spirit that we can learn the truth that will truly set us free. And that is our desire, that you will guide us in our uh, study of these uh, passages of Scripture this morning. And Father, I pray that as your Word is proclaimed here and throughout this country and around the world, many places at this very hour, your Word is being proclaimed. And we pray that you will anoint and empower and that you will draw unto yourself those that you've called to be part of the kingdom of God. Oh Lord, may our lives be faithful to you in all that we do and all that we say. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 6, and I'd like to read beginning at verse 17. And these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both of the fortified cities and of the country villages. And the large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua the Beshemite. And he, that is the Lord, struck down some of the men of Bethshemesh, because they looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down all of the people, 50,070 men, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? To whom shall he go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirith-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. The ark of the covenant, of course, was the most sacred emblem and, and vehicle of the, of the presence of God within Israel. The Ark of the Covenant had been taken by the Philistines as a result of a battle which had occurred nearly a year before, the Battle of Ebenezer, as we noted. And because the Ark had wrought such havoc inside of Philistia, the Philistines decided they needed to send the Ark back, but they didn't want to send it back without a gift. And so the golden replicas of the tumors, which were probably bubonic plague tumors, and of the mice, which the Philistines had included as a guilt offering. Their own priests, strange as it might seem, their own priests felt that a, a guilt offering had to be given, partly, of course, because that was how they appeased their gods. But certainly there was a little bit of light dawning here through God's instructions that uh, they should do this. And what happened was, of course, that the ark was miraculously returned to Israel. And we read that story last time of the two 
cows that were nursing calves at that very moment were taken from their calves. Their ta calves were taken home, and then the cows were, were attached to a brand new cart on which the ark had been placed. And, and then the cows were allowed to just go wherever they wanted to go, and they went the opposite direction of their calves, which cows would never do, except, of course, under the divine impetus of the Lord. And they, remember we read, the, the scripture says, they load the whole way. <laughs> the cows really were complaining about having to leave their calves and go in the opposite direction, but they took the ark into Israel to the field near the city of Beth Shemesh. After initial outburst of offering sacrifices and praise because of the safe return of the ark, the men of Beshemish at that point demonstrated their real attitude towards the God of Israel. Certainly partly out of curiosity, but more to blame was curiosity. It was the lack of respect for the holiness of God that these men profaned the ark. What all they did, it says they looked into the ark. Uh, did they take the top off? Did they try to see what was inside? Whatever it was, we read the passages of Scripture which indicated the ark was never even to be touched by human hands, let alone anybody to be digging around inside of it. And as a result, God slaughtered many of the men of Beth Shemesh. And what this did was, of course, created a, created a sense of fright. <laughs> if this is the way God is, we don't want God around. And so the men of Beshemish, rather than seeking to conform to God's holiness, to prepare their hearts so they could stand in the presence of a holy God, they thought, we better get rid of God. And of course, that's what's happening in our society today. We're getting rid of God, or they're trying to. Sorry, it just won't happen, but that's what some are trying to do. And we aren't sorry, I know, but uh, as I noted last week, obedience to God and His Word requires a level of commitment and faith which many people do not want to strive to attain. They want to just sit back and let it happen. You know, I mean, after all, you know, God loves everybody, and so why, why should I put myself out to try to do what God wants me to do? But we read from Matthew chapter 16 at the end of class last time that in order to walk with God, we are required to deny our flesh, to deny our fleshly desires, and to follow Him. And uh, that is the point at which most people who are not serious in their faith rebel and they simply won't do it. In fact, many who even claim to be Christians live according to the flesh and as a result profane the holiness of God. We live in a day when it's popular, particularly amongst the intellectual elite, to deny the very existence of God. Uh, many people have taken Friedrich Nietzsche to be their guiding light. You know, God is dead. God is around no more. Don't worry about God. He's gone, you know. Well, I'm afraid that Nietzsche would have a different response uh, to that right now. But they, th as an expression of this, uh, th these, these intellectual elite, uh, these, these people who think they are, are so pluralistic, we accept everybody and we accept everything and, and, and there's no uh, you know, absolute right. Everything is arbitrary. These people even denigrate the things, especially enjoy denigrating the things that Christians consider to be holy and, and part of the teaching of Scripture. Are these people being struck down in mass? You know, as they, as it were, touch the holiness of God in, in their impugning of His holiness, uh, is He striking them down in mass? Are they being slaughtered by the thousands? Well. Probably not. It doesn't seem to be that that is happening. Many of them, like Bertrand Russell, lived way up into his 90s, denying God the whole way. Well, 
They may not be being slaughtered in mass, but ultimately they will stand before the judgment seat of the very God they deny to exist. And they will, the scripture says, they will bow the knee to Jesus and they will confess that he is Lord, but it will do them no good because it is too late. They have already gone into eternity rejecting God and in spite of the teachings of many uh, cults, there is no second chance. There is no opportunity after death to, to change your mind and decide, well, I, I should have done another way because God is just and that would be unjust to allow people to live their life however they like and then still after death uh, go the way when so many have died for the faith who've paid desperately in this life to, to stay to the faith and, and their reward is, of course, eternal life and those who have chosen otherwise receive eternal death. The men of Beth Shemesh were forced to deal with the holiness of God. Here's the ark. We've got to do something about the holy God being in our midst. And so what they decide to do, send God out of their midst. And so they sent a message up to the city of Kirith-Jerim and asked the elders of Kirith-Jerim, hey, come down here and get the ark, would you, and take it up to your city. Why Kirith-Jerim? Kirith-Jerim is located to the northeast of Beth Shemesh, about 12 miles by road. It, it, there's no direct route from Beth Shemesh to Kirith Jerim. You have to go a little bit north and then cut over east to follow the main route up to uh, Kirith Jerim. But uh, I, th I think one of the reasons they chose Kirith Jerim was the fact that it is the nearest large town to Beth Shemesh that is within Israel. There were other smaller villages, but they, they were choosing uh, a town of some size. But as you look at the story, of what happened when the ark goes to Kirith Jerim and how different it is from the ark traveling to Beth Shemesh, it could be that the people of Beth Shemesh also knew that in Kirith Jerim there were some who were faithful to God, who still believed in God and were seeking to walk with Him, and therefore that may be the reason that they chose to send the ark to that particular city. Well, let's see what happened. Let's read on in the seventh chapter of First Samuel. And the men of Kirith-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. It came about from the day that the ark remained at Kirith-Jerim that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, Remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Well, the council of elders at Kirith-Jerim decided to accede to the request of the leaders of Beth Shemesh and, and they sent a group down to transport the ark up to the city of Kirith-Jerim. And certainly amongst those who came were some Levites to carry the ark as it was properly to be transported, which was on the poles that were shoved through the rings of the ark and with men on each ends of the poles carrying the ark of the covenant up the road to Kirith-Jerim. As I said, about 12 miles. So you know, what would it take them? A little over half a day probably to, to transport it, maybe a little longer since it was uphill uh, from Beth Shemesh to Kirith-Jerim. But they certainly could uh, get the ark up to the city in less than one day. 
Now, Kirith Jerim is located on the main route that goes from the coast into the highlands and connects in north of Jerusalem and uh, connects into the route that goes north to Shiloh. So you could say that Kirith Jerim might have been viewed by some as merely a stepping stone to getting the ark back to Shiloh. Shiloh was about 28 miles north northeast of uh, of Kirith Jerim, but again, you couldn't just go as the crow fly. You had to go flew. You had to go east, and then you had to turn north up the uh, the the main highway there, <laughs> highway, <laughs> the main mule trail, <laughs> to get up to Shiloh. The principal question is, why was the ark not immediately transported to Shiloh? Why why did it go to Kirith Jerim? Why didn't they just say, come on down and and take the ark back to Shiloh? Why take it to Kiriath Jerim? First Samuel does not supply us the answer to that question. It's kind of silent as to why. Just just reports that this is what happened, but doesn't say why this happened the way it did. But you may remember that last week I read to you a passage from Jeremiah chapter seven, and I read to you a passage from the seventy-eighth Psalm, which teaches us that Shiloh had been destroyed and that God had removed his hand from Shiloh and allowed it to, to become a ruin. And then he used that as an example to Israel later on when they were saying, oh, well, God will never allow anything to happen in Jerusalem because his temple is here. And God said, ah, look what happened to Shiloh. And I will do the same to Jerusalem because you have chosen to abandon the Lord your God. So what we have to, I believe, assume from this was that at some point in there, maybe right after the Battle of Ebenezer, Shiloh was destroyed. Maybe the tabernacle was destroyed at that time too. And when it refers later on to the tabernacle being in other places, that the tabernacle had been rebuilt. Or it could have been that the tabernacle was rescued before the city of Shiloh was destroyed. We, we don't know. The scripture just gives these implications without going into all the little details of what happened. Because ultimately the point of it all is that God puts his spirit where his people are where the people who are trusting him happen to be. And the ark goes to Kirith Jerim, and Kirith Jerim will be blessed, and especially the house of Abinadab, as we'll see, will be blessed because the presence of the ark in that house. So what we could say is that the ark was homeless. There was no place for the ark to actually go and be called the center of the worship of Israel. What we discover is, of course, that in the time period between now and, and David finally moving the ark to Jerusalem, that uh, the ark will reside in, in Gibeon, the ark will reside in Nob, it will be at Kirith Jerim. Uh, God will have various places where uh, his tabernacle will be. And uh, it will not be permanently located again until it's moved to Jerusalem by David. And then, of course, Solomon will build the temple as the center of the worship of Yahweh. We are told in Scripture that Kiriath Jerim was a city of Judah. It belonged to the tribe of Judah. When you look down, however, through the list of the Levitical cities, the cities which belong to the Levites, you will find that it is not included in that list. So Kiriath Jerim was not a Levitical city, and we would have thought, well, at least they probably would have sent it to a Levitical city, right? Apparently not. But given what happened at Beth Shemesh, I think it's only very logical for us to conclude that when the ark was taken up to Kirith Jerim and was installed in the house of Abinadab, Abinadab was a Levite. 
I don't think they would have put it in anybody else's house. I don't think anybody else would have wanted it in their house for fear of what would happen given what had happened at Beth Shemesh. And certainly nobody would have been consecrated to be the overseer of the ark, the protector of the ark, unless he were a Levite. And so I believe that Eliezer, the son of Abinadab, was a Levite because his father, of course, was a Levite. And so at least if it were not in a Levitical city, it was in the home of a Levite. And, and you know from other passages that we read that Levites were not just living in the Levitical city. They were if cities. They were scattered in other places too. And we read specific accounts rela- related to traveling Levites, I guess we could say. Abinadab was a man whose name meant father of generosity. Father of generosity. Uh, whether that is a, a, a statement of his character or not, we don't know because uh, in most cases, of course, names are given when children are very young and you don't even know the character of the child. And maybe it's something you're hoping will be prophetic of the char- character of the child. But it's, I think, very interesting that notice how important the name Eliezer has been in biblical history, you know. Eliezer was, uh, you know, the, the first uh, keeper of the ark after the death of Aaron. And uh, Eliezer now, of course, a different man, but he has the same name. God has helped. God is my helper, is the meaning of Eliezer. And uh, that's a wonderful name to have in the service of the Lord. And so it is his responsibility as he, to oversee and protect the ark. Father of generosity. Father of generosity. Maybe that's why the ark ended up at his house. He was maybe the most esteemed Levite in the area, somebody everybody looked up to, sort of a respected elder of some sort. We don't know. The scripture is, is quiet uh, about that. What I think we derive from this is that, first of all, the, the tragic events that are described in the fourth, fifth, and sixth chapters of 1 Samuel apparently were used by God to finally get Israel to listen up Pay attention. (laughs) And you and I, if we're honest, have to say, it's pretty easy to just set our lives in autopilot and cruise (laughs) and sometimes not be really paying attention to what God is saying. And every once in a while, he has to derail us into the wall, you know, so that we pay attention to what he's trying to say. It's part of human nature. I I don't know if this ever happens to you, but you can start out in the morning and say, okay, Lord, I'm committed to you. I'm going to do your will all day. I'm going to avoid evil things all day. And uh, 35 minutes later, you've already (laughs) run into a roadblock, you know. You've goofed up in in some way. We, We can't, by our own will, choose to be holy. We can choose to allow the Lord to work his holiness in us, but sometimes that's painful as it surely was for Israel. But now they're finally listening to his anointed prophet Daniel. Uh, uh, Daniel, yeah, I'm moving ahead here, aren't I? Samuel. (laughs) We just leaped over all the kingdoms. (laughs) I'm trying to get through the Bible in 10 years, so I'm going to have to turn it up here. (laughs) Uh, We're we're on the 25-year plan, I think it is, uh, here. Many in Israel now sought out Israel. It says, Samuel gathered all Israel, and he preached a sermon to them. Now, the sermon is, I think, just abbreviated. I don't think this is everything he had to say. But in the third verse, we read there, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. 
I think that was probably the, 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 the punchline of the sermon <laughs> that Samuel delivered that day to Israel as they gathered to listen to the man of God. If all else fails, listen to God. Mm. The conditions for deliverance are given very clearly here. And these are eternal conditions. These are conditions that prevail from Genesis through Revelation. He says, return wholeheartedly to the Lord. He says, remove all other gods. And he says, serve Yahweh alone. My, isn't that bigoted? That's very non-pluralistic, isn't it? Doesn't fly in our society, does it? Serve God alone? You mean the God of the Bible? Oh, but that's so narrow. As the transcendental man who's seeking the presidency says, he, he believes in God, but he doesn't think God can be narrowed down to just one person or one, one belief system. But we need all of the belief systems to lead us to the true God. Well, if we believe in the scripture, we cannot believe that to be true. Scripture is extremely specific. So what, what are these conditions that Samuel has set forth? What, what is this tripartite action that people must take? Well, first of all, repentance in the heart must occur. We must repent of our sin. Secondly, actively turn away from evil. Choose to reject evil. Now, that doesn't mean it's permanently rejected out of our lives, but we've got to start somewhere, right? Israel had to start again. Israel had done this many times before, right? So now Israel is doing it again, but we all have to do it again, as often as it takes. And then thirdly, to seek and to serve God alone. And that's not easy either. Not only do we have Satan jabbering in our ear all the time, trying to get us to, to follow the world and himself, but we have our own flesh that's constantly nagging at us to do the things which are not of God. What is interesting, I, I think here, and, and what helps us to see the timeless nature of, of the program or these principles that Samuel has set forth is that we read them again in this oft-quoted uh, passage from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Those of you who remember the bicentennial year, and most of you do, you know that these were the, this was the passage that was used particularly by Campus Crusade to, to be the, the, the sort of the, the byword of the bicentennial of the United States. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, at verse 13, we read this, and this is God speaking, of course, to Solomon. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. Now, that can be anything. It can be enemy uh, nations, whatever. He's just giving some examples. Then he says, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. So what do we have here? We have the same thing. Humble themselves. That's repentance. We have seeking God's face, and we have turning from their wicked ways. The same three principles that Samuel includes are included in this particular passage because they are eternal principles. They are principles that not only applied to Israel 3,000 years ago, but they're principles that apply to you and to me every day of our lives. 
it just seems to me that the principle of humbling ourselves before the Lord has to be followed on a continual basis. I don't think we can abase ourselves before God and, and, and proclaim that we're totally nothing and, and that we're everything only uh, by His Spirit infilling me and then it's all over with and for the rest of our lives we're just totally humble. I don't think so. Pride just keeps rearing its ugly head all the time. You know, it's like the old adage, um, you know, I'm, I'm very humble and I'm quite proud of it, you know, and that's the problem we face. We're very humble, but we're very proud of it. In response to Samuel's proclamation, Israel ridded itself of all the trappings of the worship of the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Again, reminding you, I probably don't need to do this, but these were fertility gods and goddesses. Baal was the Canaanite god of the storm, but he was a fertility god in the Ashtoreth. Uh, represented Ashtart, and she was the female consort of Baal, and they were both fertility deities, and all kinds of horrible things went on in worship of those deities. Very fleshly appealing things. And to rid Israel of all those trappings was very, very essential before they could focus on God alone. You can't focus on God alone if 47,000 other things are yelling in your ear at the same time. It's kind of like the guy who says, I'm going to commit myself to, to being totally chaste and obedient to the Lord and faithful to my wife alone, and yet his house is filled with all kinds of pornography and everything else. I mean, you've got to get rid of that along with the commitment uh, to being obedient. It's, it's a double-edged sword. Reading on in uh, 1 Samuel 7 at verse 5, Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And they gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them, so that they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bethkar. To confirm this revival, which had begun with the initial sermon that we read about in, in the first part of this chapter, to confirm what Israel was doing in the recommitment, the dedication, to the Lord, he gathered all Israel. And when you see that it says gathers all Israel, we know at least it means that all of the adult males came. Whether others came, maybe, but at least all of the adult males gathered at Mizpah. Samuel said, I'm going to, we're going to have a mountaintop experience, if you like, here. We're all going to gather at Mizpah, and there we're going to rededicate ourselves. Now, Mizpah means watchtower. Now, if you've ever been in Israel, there are a lot of watchtowers in Israel. <laughs> even today, there are leftover watchtowers out in the fields that were used hundreds and even thousands of years ago by the shepherd or the 
a person taking watch over the vineyard or the orchard, getting up there to make sure there was nothing to harm the flock uh, coming. So there are a lot of Mizpahs in Scripture. So the question is, which Mizpah are we talking about here? Well, the most likely location is the site which is today known as Nabi Samuel. If you've been there, it's, it's on a hilltop. It's very prominent. And of course, today it's extremely prominent because there's a mosque there sitting on top of it. And uh, inside is supposed to be you know, the tomb of the prophet Samuel. This is a hill located about eight miles north of Jerusalem. But is important about this, and I think how it makes it fit in, is that Nabi Samuel, this hill, sits at the very head of a valley that drops down, clear down to the coastal plain called the Valley of Aijalon, A-I-J-A-L-O-N. And from Nabi Samuel, on a clear day, you can see clear down to the coastal plain. And I think that's very important for understanding the uh, events that took place in this particular passage. Samuel is leading Israel in a confessional service. They're up there confessing before the Lord, their God, that they have sinned against him. Not only did Samuel pray for them, though, we discover in this passage, and not only did Israel make it a fast unto the Lord, but the scripture tells us there that they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. We might say, oh, well, what does that mean? <laughs> well, what is interesting is that this is an unprecedented act. There's nothing in Scripture before this that compares to this particular event of drawing water and then, as part of a confessional, pouring water out onto the ground before the Lord. It seems to be a symbolic statement being made by the people there. In the presence of God, we are of no greater value than water poured on the ground is of any value. Meaning, of course, in themselves alone. We, we have to aver, avoid worm theology. You know, the idea that we're just totally despicable and useless and have no good value at all. Well, in the flesh, that is true. But empowered by the Spirit, we are of great value. <laughs> Jesus died for us, and, and God wants us in his kingdom, empowered by his Spirit, redeemed by the blood of Christ. But I think sometimes it does us good to just admit before God that without him, we're nothing because we live in a very prideful society. Uh, we live in a society where we, people run around and, and almost do obeisance to, to you know, athletic heroes and music heroes, and I just cannot understand it myself. Makes me sick. I can remember when I was, uh, when I was younger and we were teaching Sunday school to budding teenagers, <laughs> uh, mostly girls, and you know, the Beatles. <laughs> And these girls were just, oh, they were lauding the Beatles. And I thought, what? They're just a bunch of screwballs who, uh, who have a, some ability to sing, but they're, they're not worth bowing down to and screaming and fainting about, you know. You did the same thing with Frank Sinatra back in the Boston <laughs> Yeah, that's true. It's a true in any generation, you know. I've never been able to figure that out. Uh, I've never had a fainting spell while looking at anybody that I can think of. But, but it is a human, it is a human thing. Uh, it, it's built into us to worship something greater than ourselves. And if it's not God, we'll fill it with something else. And so many in America fill it with themselves. They just, just read about these celebrities. It's, it's kind of sickening. Of course, their lives are all so tragic too. 
It doesn't matter if you're reading about Frank Sinatra or the Beatles or whoever you read about. Their lives are so filled with tragedy. It's just awful. I think the concept, though, here is echoed for us in the words of Jeremiah, where in Lamentations he says, Pour out your heart like water before the presence of God. I think implied in that is not only the sense that, that without him we have no worth, but I think it also implies don't hold anything back. You know, as, as, as you turn a container over, all the water drops out. If you open your heart and pour it out before the Lord, you're giving him everything. You're pouring it all out. You're not holding anything back. It's not like not honey or something. It sticks in there and doesn't want to come out. You, you just give it all to the Lord. Apparently, at this time, the men of Israel finally recognize that not only is Samuel the anointed prophet of God, but he is their shofat, their deliverer, the anointed one of Israel to lead them through this trying time, both spiritually as well as politically. And what is so wonderful about this is we've read about several shofat, shofatim, all through the book of Judges. And some of them, like Samson, what kind of spiritual guidance did he give Israel? Well, he went out and beamed a few Philistines. But he sure didn't give Israel any spiritual guidance. But now to have a man who is God's man, who is a priest and shofat, Israel never had it any better. And of course, eventually, he, he's sort of the type of David who is a type of Christ. Not, not that David was a priest, but he served in many ways as a spiritual leader for Israel. And particularly, of course, as we read Psalm 51 and the great uh, uh, prayer of David there. It is quite clear from scriptural precedence that when God's people became apostate, it generally took tragedy and or oppression to bring them to true repentance and revival. And this is a theme that's not only true in Scripture, it's a theme of life. You know, some of us have remembered the old uh, song, the old uh, hymn that said something, says uh, that, why is it that we should sail on uh, flowery seas while others, flowery beds of ease while others sail the stormy seas, something like that. I've, you know, we're so out of habit of singing hymns now that I uh, can't even remember the words anymore. But you know, I've yet to find anybody who's a real Christian who's exactly on what I would call flowery beds of ease all the time. You know? uh, God doesn't usually put us on flowery beds of ease for any length of time. Uh, I think most certainly, most of us would agree that it's, it's difficult times that keep us close to the Lord. When hard things come along, who do we turn to if we really know the Lord? We turn to Him and we cry out to Him, which is what He wants us to do. That's precisely why God allows hard times to come in our lives. I'm sorry, but the health and wealth gospel is totally off the wall. It's totally not part of Scripture or part of anybody's real life. And I even talked to a person once who who was an absolute believer in health and wealth, and yet things weren't going so well <laughs> in his family. And he, he was just stuck in this situation. You know, this is the way it's supposed to be, but it's not happening, what's wrong, uh, kind of deal. You know, uh, health and wealth sounds really good to me. And most of us have a measure of health and a measure of wealth in this society, but, but you know, hard times do come. And God allows them, and God even brings them. Let, let me read a passage. I think uh, this passage needs to be 
we need to be reminded of it. First uh, Peter chapter one, beginning at verse three. First Peter chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven, nobody else is going to take your place, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be, to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our eternal life is reserved for us. Our place in heaven is protected by the power of God. And yet in this life, hard times will come because those hard times not only keep us close to him, but as we read in this uh, particular passage, it is the proof of our faith. Our faith is purified, made genuine, more pure than gold. I think more people, in their older years in particular, are one to the faith by seeing how Christians weather hard times than they are by just listening to somebody preach a word, preach a sermon. Our faith is ultimately imperishable, but it has to be demonstrated. And I, I mentioned this to you in other uh, venues, but let me just remind you again that back in the third century, there was a great man of the faith whose name was Tertullian. And Tertullian is the one who actually uh, wrote in one of his writings that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But he himself testifies to the fact that that's how he came to know the Lord. He was in an arena watching Christians die, being sacrificed for their faith, and he thought, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I wouldn't die for the gods I know. I gotta find out about this. You know, the sincerity of these people who are willing to die for what they believe so impressed him that he was ultimately one to the faith himself. And so, uh, you know, this is what happens. This is what God allows into our lives, not only for our perfection, but for the demonstration of the reality of the faith to a sin-sick world. Well, let me just read one other passage of Scripture because it so fits in with what Samuel is saying here and it occurs towards the end of Israel's existence as a nation, a uh, unified nation. In Hosea, we read these words in Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. This is the Lord speaking. And in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Then the sixth chapter we read, come, let us return to the Lord. These are the people speaking now. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. He is going forth, his going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, watering the earth. 
This was the message that Hosea delivered to Israel at a time of apostasy. This is the message that Samuel delivered to Israel at a time of apostasy. And, and Israel was transformed and Israel repented. And did God help Israel? Hmm. We don't have time to look at it today, but God helped Israel in a mighty way. But we'll look at that next week.